On the morning of April 14, 1997, 17-year-old Bai Xiaoyan is getting ready for school. She's an independent and free-spirited teenager who, despite being the daughter of Taiwanese celebrity Bai Bingbing, leads an ordinary life, even walking to school by herself each day. At 7am, the old-fashioned alarm clock Xiaoyan has set for her mother goes off. She turns it off, wakes her mother and says goodbye as she sets off for school. As her mother watches her leave, she thinks to herself that Xiaoyan has grown into a beautiful woman and will probably start attracting boys soon. At 4pm, later that day, Bingbing is at a music session at her recording studio when she receives a phone call from an unknown number. She answers and is immediately concerned as the voice on the line sounds distorted, drunk even. With no introduction, the man on the other end of the line tells Bingbing that she's to head straight for the nearby Changchen golf course, where she'll find her daughter's belongings. Bingbing's life immediately comes crashing down around her. Her brother and the music director, who are also in the room, catch drift of what is happening, and together they cry out, kidnap. Bingbing begins to panic. As a last warning, the kidnappers warn Bingbing not to call the police, but in her frantic state, she does anyway and races to the golf course. The golf course is nearly seven square kilometers and without any more information, the search lasts almost six hours. In despair at not being able to find any evidence of her daughter, Bingbing slumps to the ground. And as she's sitting there in utter hopelessness, she notices a plastic bag on the course. Thinking that it looks out of place, she decides to take a closer look. The police warn her not to use her hands for fear of contaminating the evidence and possibly smudging any fingerprints. So Bingbing uses a pair of chopsticks, carefully opens up the bag and looks at what's inside. The first thing she sees is a lunchbox and recognizing it as Xiaoyan's, she immediately pries open the lid. Inside she sees something but perhaps due to the shock is unable to discern what it is. Using her chopsticks, she picks it up and to her horror, realizes she's looking at a severed finger. Now the police take over and begin investigating the lunchbox. Inside, they also find a ransom note written in Xiao Yen's hand, demanding $5 million for her safe return. The next 14 days are hell for Bingbing. The kidnappers continually call her to make sure that the police are not investigating them. Sometimes they let Bingbing talk to her daughter, sometimes they just make threats. The calls are random, so she must sit by the phone all day and all night and, due to the stress, is unable to eat or drink. To make matters worse, the kidnappers keep changing their phones, so it's impossible for the police to trace them. And if this wasn't bad enough, due to Bingbing's celebrity status and the fact that she's supposed to be recording a new album, the press quickly become aware of what is happening and they pounce. They begin reporting details of the case, alerting the kidnappers to the police's involvement. They then call Bingbing, telling her that she will regret involving the police and the media. But then there's a breakthrough. Police finally manage to trace one of the calls to a criminal by the name of Lin Chun-seng, well known for committing burglaries. Through him, they're able to connect a second man, Chen Jing-sing, a violent rapist with a long criminal record. The final member of the kidnappers gang wasn't hard to identify. Fingerprint specialists were able to implicate Gao Tianming, as he had an unusual feature of his fingerprints being the wrong way round. His left hand prints faced right, 
and his right hand prints face left. The police now have their suspects and they're looking for a way to close in on the gang. But then on April 25th, everything changes. The kidnappers make one final call to Bing Bing. They've had enough messing around and they demand that $5 million is delivered to a location of their choosing in Taipei. By now, Bing Bing has the money needed to see her daughter return safely and is praying that the ordeal will soon be over. She makes her way to the designated location to pay the ransom, but unfortunately, she isn't alone. In what will become a reoccurring theme in this case, the Taiwanese press are hot on Bing Bing's tail, each vying desperately for any new information in this high profile story. And because of this, when she finally reaches the meeting point, followed by this huge contingent of reporters, the kidnappers are nowhere to be seen. With their number one lead in catching the criminals and saving Bai Xiaoyan gone, the police switch tactics. As they know the names of the suspects, they decide to track them down through their families. They send a team to stake out the homes of each of the suspects' families. Chen Jin Singh is the first to arrive. Believing that they have the upper hand, the police sit back as Chen approaches the door of his wife's apartment. They're planning to let him go inside first and arrest him inside the home. But just as Chen is approaching the apartment door, his wife's voice screams out, A Jing, A Jing, run away. Hearing this, Chen turns and flees, somehow managing to avoid police efforts to arrest him. And with his escape, the hope of finding Bai Xiaoyan alive quickly begins to fade. In a last-ditch effort, her mother holds a press conference begging her daughter's captors to release her. Unfortunately, from then on, the ransom calls stop and the gang appear to have vanished. A few days later, on April 28th, a member of the public reports finding a young girl's corpse floating in a ditch just 12 kilometers from where Bai Xiaoyan was abducted. But before the police have a chance to investigate further, the media, jumping to assumptions, report that the body could be that of the missing 17-year-old girl. The first that Bing Bing hears of the body and its apparent connection to her daughter's case is not through the police, but instead through the local news. She claims that she knew then and there that the body was that of her daughter, that she wasn't sad and she didn't cry. Instead, as she arrived at the scene and approached the heavenly swollen body of a young girl, she spoke softly saying, this is the best outcome you're not in pain anymore. The body was so badly decomposed that it was impossible to tell who it belonged to. The police made a check. Was the girl missing a finger? They gently lifted the body out of the ditch and upon closer inspection, discovered that it was. A more thorough investigation would reveal that Bai Xiaoyan had been raped and tortured before she died of internal bleeding. They also discover that she had been dead for at least 10 days, meaning that her captors had never had any intention of releasing her. For Bai Bingbing, it was a tragic end to a horrific story marred by police incompetence and an unethical media interference. But for Taiwan, it was only the beginning. The gang that had committed this evil act would continue their reign of terror for another seven months, leaving at least five more dead.
Welcome back to Memories of Murder with me, Agrit Bunyai. This episode is titled, and indeed the case itself is widely known as the murder of Bai Xiaoyan, and while her abduction and murder would warrant interest by itself, this case is much, much more. It plays out like a Hollywood movie from start to finish, and some of the events that take place are truly unbelievable. From the audacity of the crimes carried out by Chen Jinxing and his gang, to the sheer incompetence of the police and the utterly disgraceful behaviour of the Taiwanese press, this story becomes more and more unbelievable as it goes on. But trust me, it's very, very real. Relatively speaking, thanks to a prolonged era of economic growth and prosperity, Taiwan is one of the safest cities in Asia. It's managed well, it's clean, it has a thriving tourism industry, but it didn't start out like this. During the 1990s, Taiwan was in a state of transition. The event known as the Taiwan Miracle that turned the island nation into a global economic player and made it one of the four Asian tigers was coming to an end thanks to the rise of China. Relations with its cross-straits neighbour China were still tense politically, despite the two nations becoming closer than ever economically, and at home, a new era of democratisation was being ushered in. But as with all countries and cities, the rise of the wealthy meant a greater and greater distinction between the haves and the have-nots. And this, of course, meant that there was a greater likelihood for crime. It was only in the 1980s that Taiwan ended decades of martial law, and with that change came more freedom of movement for its citizens and a more open media environment. But despite the rapid change, there were still a number of issues that seemingly held them back. Most notably was the Draconian Bandit Law, a piece of legislation introduced in the 1940s during the Civil War with China that made any crime associated with banditry punishable by death. This law would remain a touchy subject in Taiwan up until it was abolished in 1999, and part of that pressure to remove it came from this very case. As we rejoin the investigation, it's now August 19th, 1997, four months since the discovery of Bai Xiaoyan's corpse. The police, having let one of the suspects slip through their grasp, are now no longer dealing with kidnapping. They're now hunting a gang of murderers. Without any new leads, the police are getting desperate. Instead of trying to track down where the gang is hiding, they instead try to find out how they're getting around Taipei. Motorbikes are an extremely popular mode of transport in Taiwan and each vehicle must be registered through a person's national ID card. The police decide that they'll try and track down all stolen or missing ID cards and match them to registered motorbikes. It's a massive task that has them sifting through over 30,000 names. Eventually, after six months of investigation, they finally narrow their search down to just two bikes registered to stolen ID cards. In what must have felt like finding a needle in a haystack across a city of over 3 million people, the police finally locate the bikes. 
They first noticed that the bikes had been parked at an odd angle so as to hide the number plate from view to anyone looking from the street. Feeling that they must have found their suspects, they take a closer look and inside the bike's storage compartment, they find toothbrushes, toothpaste and other toiletries. Just what someone who was on the run would need to carry around with them. Sure now that they've struck gold, they sit back and observe the bikes, waiting for the owners to return. As soon as they do, recognising Lin Chun-seng and Gao Tianming as their lead suspects, the police strike. But things don't go according to plan. The men are armed and a gunfight ensues. During the exchange, a police officer is shot and killed. One of the suspects, Lin Chun-seng, is shot six times and with no hope of escape, turns the gun on himself and dies at the scene. The chief investigator, seeing that this could turn into a huge problem, orders in 800 reinforcements to search for the remaining suspects. Unbelievably, however, Gao escapes and the media has a field day chastising the operation. Up until now, this has by all accounts been an extraordinary case, but from here on out, this is where things get really crazy. Not long after Lin's death, Gao and Chen have now vanished, and hopes of their capture are fading. But then, a local crime reporter receives a tip. It's never been explained where this tip came from, but he's informed that there's been a murder at a plastic surgery clinic in Taipei. Armed with a video camera, the reporter enters the clinic. The first thing he notices is, if this is truly a crime scene, it doesn't look like it. He had been expecting blood splattered all over the walls, but instead, it was clear that someone had cleaned up the scene. Even stranger though was the fact that no attempt had been made to dispose of the bodies that he was about to find. The first real evidence of foul play he discovers is a pair of legs sticking out of an open doorway. They belong to a woman and she's wearing white nurse's shoes. Her legs have been tied together with yellow tape. Next to the nurse he finds a middle-aged woman. Her eyes have been taped shut, again with the same yellow tape. There's a single gunshot wound on her temple. Moving further into the clinic, the reporter finds two more people in the bathroom. A doctor slumped over the toilet, a single gunshot to his head, and a second nurse's lifeless body that's been dumped in a nearby bathtub. The culprits are long gone, and the reporter alerts the police to what has happened. It later transpires that Gao and Chen had broken into the clinic and forced the surgeon, his wife, and the two nurses to perform plastic surgery and alter their appearances. Once the operation had been completed, the pair executed them one after the other so as to prevent anyone from being able to identify them and their new looks. Two months later, on November 17th, having seemingly recovered from his surgery, Gao reappears. Whatever alterations he had received from the clinic were not enough to disguise who he was and a member of the public that had seen one of the many wanted posters around the city recognises Gao immediately as he enters a massage parlour. He then informs the police. Once again, as soon as the police arrive on the scene, they search the motorbike the suspect had arrived on and once again they find the toiletries and toothpaste stuffed into the baggage compartment. The hunt was now on. Instead of sitting back and waiting as they had done on previous occasions, the police decide to enter the massage parlour. 
one of the officers heads up the stairs leading to the shop and rings the doorbell. A gunshot rings out and the police have yet another gunfight on their hands. During this exchange, another police officer is shot, although this time it's not life-threatening. As the sounds of shots rattle back and forth, two women that work in the massage parlour escape by jumping out of the window. One more shot is fired and then everything goes quiet. Finally, the police enter the shop, only to find that, like Lynn, Gao has shot himself. Chen Jingxing, who many believe was the mastermind of the operation, is now the sole member of the gang left alive, and he's about to make his boldest move yet. Chen was a atypical criminal. He grew up without knowing his father and was pushed from home to home a lot during his youth. He suffered an abusive relationship with his stepfather and eventually was left in the care of his partially blind grandmother. Without any structure or discipline in his life, Chen quickly turns to a life of crime. It's not long before petty theft turns into more serious crimes and before long he finds himself in prison for the violent rape of a young woman and her mother. For that crime he actually received the death sentence but this was commuted to life in prison and inexplicably he was eventually released only to resume his criminal ways. Now before Gao's death he and Chen knew that they needed to flee the country. That's why they had undergone plastic surgery. Most likely, they had been hoping to head to China, as at the time there was no extradition treaty and no cooperation between the two countries. The plan that they hatched together involved attracting international attention by hijacking a school bus from the American school. They had wanted to use the media and the hostages in their negotiations with the Taipei city government. But Gao's death was a problem for Chen. He wasn't confident that he could carry out such an audacious plan by himself. So instead, hoping to go out with a bang, he tries one final play. Colonel Alexander McGill is a South African military attaché living with his family in Taipei. On November 19th, he and his wife and their three children are at home enjoying a quiet evening. Their oldest daughter is practicing the piano in their garage when she sees a man entering the building. It's Chen and he quickly grabs her and pushes her upstairs where the rest of the family is relaxing and informs them that they are now his hostages. Next, Chen tells the wife to call CNN that he's looking for international media attention. It so happens that Mrs. McGill is friends with a CNN reporter based in Taipei, so she calls him to explain the situation and very soon the area becomes a media circus. And I really do mean circus. While the police scramble to begin negotiations with Chen, the media are much, much quicker. They manage to get hold of the household number and one of them puts in a call. When Chen answers, this surreal interview is played out on live television. The police haven't even spoken to him yet, but a journalist is getting him to sing karaoke and even asking him if he plans to commit suicide like the other members of the gang. This obviously angers Chen greatly. It's incomprehensible that such a scenario could ever happen in real life. Finally, the police get themselves in gear and after some tense negotiations that they claim was jeopardized by media interference, decide that they need to send in the SWAT team. 
By now, we know that Chen is not shy about using violence, and this time is no different, and yet another gunfight ensues. Unfortunately, during the exchange, the colonel takes a bullet to the leg while his daughter is shot through the hand with the bullet lodging itself in her back. When the hail of bullets stops, one lone hostage negotiator enters the house unarmed to beg for the injured pair to be released. Once they're out safely, it seems Chen has lost his nerve and it's not long before he releases Mrs. Gill, the couple's other daughter and their infant foster son and then surrenders himself. The seven-month reign of terror that had plunged Taipei into fear was finally over. Pai Xiaoyan's murder and its aftermath captivated Taiwan. And it's not surprising, in less than a year, the gang kidnapped and murdered one of the island's most beloved celebrity's daughter. They'd taken part in two massive gunfights with police that left two members of the gang dead. They'd undergone plastic surgery and executed all of the staff at the clinic. And finally, they'd taken a South African military attaché's family hostage. And so bizarre that it's hard to believe that it really happened. But it did happen and the result was a huge backlash against politicians and police who the public believed were ineffective in the midst of a massive crime wave. Due to the events of the case, the government of Taiwan's first democratically elected president was in complete tatters and Taiwan's chief of police and the minister of the interior both resigned to take responsibility for the case, which was covered daily by a transfixed local media. But the media didn't get off lightly either. Their behaviour throughout was appalling. At one point, it got so out of hand that one journal even published confidential information regarding the case. To avoid obstruction to the crime investigation and danger to the hostages as a result of this leak, the police spent more than $400,000 in one single day to buy up all of the copies of the magazine. When you factor in the fact that they involved themselves in an ongoing kidnap case and interfered in an active hostage situation, it's clear why they became despised across the region. Despite the seemingly clear-cut end to the case, there are, however, a number of theories and holes in this story. First of all, and I must make it clear that nothing has ever been made of this, there were some questions about the death of Lin and Gao. It seemed odd that they would both commit suicide, especially when Chen didn't. Some believe that the police may have actually killed them themselves and framed it as a suicide. Adding weight to this theory, during the McGill hostage situation, Melanie, the daughter who was used as a human shield by Chen, was shot through the hand and the bullet lodged itself in her back. It's been argued that this seems unlikely as Chen should have been behind her. To me, it's entirely possible that a stray bullet that was meant for Chen accidentally hit Melanie instead, but there's never been any official accusations and no investigation has been made. Another even more outlandish theory is that this whole debacle was started because Bai Bingbing owed a debt to the Yakuza, and this whole story was carried out as revenge. It was common knowledge at the time that her husband did have Yakuza connections, but again, this theory has never seen a formal investigation. Whatever the motive, her daughter's death turned by being being into a tough-on-crime social activist, campaigning to keep the death penalty in place. In 2010, she helped to break a 52-month death penalty moratorium and forced the resumption in executions when she threatened to commit suicide if Taiwan went ahead with the abolition of the death penalty. 
As for Chen, on January 22, 1998, two months after his arrest, he's found guilty of three kidnappings, ten rapes and four murders. He receives five death sentences and is executed by firing squad ten months later on October the 6th. Before his execution, Chen supposedly turned to religion, began to express remorse and pray for forgiveness. Some reports suggest that he donated his body to medical science, but what are undoubtedly rumours say that his internal organs were auctioned off on eBay. And if those rumours weren't enough, there's even been talk that Paramount has bought the rights to the story, unsurprisingly, to use as a sequel to the movie Face Off. That's it for this episode, so thank you for listening to Memories of Murder. I'd like to thank all of the listeners for your continued support, and I must also apologise for the slight delay in getting this episode up. As usual, real life got in the way. As always, if there's any cases that you'd like to hear more about, or you just have some feedback on the show, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can email me at memoriesofmurderasia at gmail. That's all for now, and remember, don't have nightmares. Thank you.